If you would turn to Luke chapter 24, in your Bible, Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12 is where we're going to be at today in God's Word. Luke 24, verses 1 through 12, it reads this, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed down their faces uh, to the ground, the, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. I want to preach to you this morning, uh, and I'm going to call this sermon, I'm going to title this sermon, But on the First Day of the Week. But on the First Day of the Week. Not just simply on the First Day of the Week. There's a but there. What precedes uh, uh, the resurrection, what comes before the resurrection is what? The death, the burial of Jesus Christ. Jesus had died, but on the first day of the week. That's the title of my sermon. You tracking with me? All right, let's get into it. Let me, let me begin with reminding you of a little story here. So, uh, it was a, a cool spring evening. Uh, the sun had set. It was nighttime. And Peter had found himself following Jesus all the way to the courtyard. Jesus had been arrested. And there's Peter uh, among all of Jesus' enemies. Just a week before, not even a week before, that, that previous Sunday, they come into the city of Jerusalem. Jesus is on a donkey. It's what we now call Palm Sunday where they're celebrating him. It's the coronation of the king. Everybody is happy. But the week, as we talked about last week, doesn't go as expected. A turn for the worse, right? By Wednesday, there's things happening in the temple uh, that, that upset the religious establishment of the day. Uh, the controversy surrounding Jesus for his entire ministry now finally comes uh, to a close this week as the enemies of Christ, the religious establishment, partner up with the Roman Empire and crucify Jesus. Their, their uh, dark thoughts turned into a demonic plan. Judas was willing 
to turn him over, to betray him. That's what they needed, an insider. Judas betrays Jesus. Peter then, this courageous Peter, his, his courage turns to cowardice. As Peter follows Jesus, arrested all the way to the, to the home of the high priest Caiaphas. But there now, as Jesus is being beaten, punched in the face, whipped, as Jesus is uh, given a sham trial, appearing before man, mocked, spit on, all of a sudden Peter becomes a coward. The, the man of courage that he thought he was has been, been, been crushed. Somebody comes along and they say, well, wait a second, aren't you one of his disciples? And what is Peter's response? I never knew the guy. A second person asks the same question and accuses Peter of following Jesus. And he says, no, I'm not a follower of Jesus. A third person comes along and says, aren't you with him? I never knew him. I don't know him. Denies knowledge of Jesus. Denies following Jesus. In this moment, Peter runs from Jesus. But before he runs, he turns in that courtyard, and in some fashion, whether Jesus looked out a window or was being uh, taken across a bridge, we don't know. In some fashion, in that moment, Peter makes eye contact with Jesus. And this will be the last time that Peter looks at Jesus before Jesus is dead. Jesus is dead. He's buried. For Peter, there is no hope. Imagine living with that guilt over your head. In this moment, Peter's biggest enemies are no longer those three uh, uh, people who accused him of following Jesus. His biggest enemies are, are no longer the, the Roman Empire or the religious establishment of the day, those who could harm his body. His biggest enemy right now is God himself, who he is going to have to, uh, at some point, stand in front of and be judged. In his life right now, as it relates to his physical life, then his biggest enemy is death itself. And we are all under the curse of death. I don't know who you came in here thinking your enemy was. But your biggest enemy as a human being is death itself. Nobody can escape the fact that they are going to one day die. You know, people do all kinds of things to forget the fact that they are going to die. I can't tell you how many funerals I've been to in my life. And it's amazing how we pretend that even the person in the casket is in some fashion immortal. The funerals that I attend, I hear people say things like they got their wings or they're still with us. They're present with us. I can feel them in this room. And I want to be as sensitive as possible re realizing that we have all lost people, but, but I'm here to say like they're, they're not. They're gone. Like death really is the end. 
three years later, when you post on social media that they're watching over you, they're not. They don't see you. They're not interacting with you. Death is final. But even as we think of our own lives and our, contemplate our own deaths, we don't think of it as finality. Freud said that he believed that everybody thinks that they're immortal. And his proof was this. He said, even when people think about their own death, they think of it in terms of observing this life on earth without them present. As if now they become sort of this third party of observation. As if they can observe how their family grieves their loss. As if they can observe their funeral. As if they can go on and see what life is like five, ten years without them. As if they'll have any clue whether or not the history books record them having lived. We think of ourselves in an immortal fashion. Like we're always going to somehow be here on this earth. But friends, the reality is that death is final. When you die, you are no longer present on this earth. You're gone. It's the end. We all face this reality. Yet, we do everything that we can to, to avoid thinking about it. The dying we put in hospice and hospitals and homes and often disconnect from their lives so that we don't have to see the fact that they're dying. The dead bodies are put into a morgue. We don't interact with their body. We have surgeries and creams to try to reverse the youth, or our age rather, and regain some kind of youth. Hair dye and toupees. Let it go. Just shave it. Some people embrace it, right? Amen. You know, I heard somebody say once that uh, the reason people get high and get drunk is because they're just trying to, just for a moment, forget the fact that they're going to die. Just for a moment, they're trying to regain that joy of youthfulness. Just for a moment, they're trying to feel immortal. I wonder if in some way uh, so many of the sins that we find ourselves wrapped up in is, is in some fashion just trying to regain youth. Just trying to reverse the curse of death. Well, we, we get into Luke chapter 24 this morning. You know, we spent five, five sermons focusing on the death of Jesus Christ. Five sermons in Luke chapter 23. Now we turn the page and we see, but on the first day. I want to, I want to today, I want to look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ and ask what it means for us today. The day began pretty normal. A regular Sunday morning for Jesus' followers. The women get up early and 
the, the sun has risen. They grab the spices that they had prepared a day before, put them maybe into a little sack, and they walk to the place where they witnessed the burial of Jesus. This is the third day now that Jesus is in the grave. He died on Friday. He spent all day Saturday in the grave. And Sunday morning, it marks the third day. By this time, Jesus' body would begin early signs of decomposition. There would be a putrid smell coming from the tomb. You might remember that Jesus visited Lazarus on the third day of his death. And uh, Jesus commanded that the grave be opened up. And Martha replied and said, no, don't do it. There's going to be a stench by now. Jesus' body should be decomposing. This is why they bring spices. They didn't embalm bodies back, uh, or at least the Jews did not embalm bodies. And so what they would do to preserve uh, the, the body was just simply put spices on it. It wasn't really a preservation as much as it was just dealing with the smell. So they bring a number of spices. They are prepared uh, to, to go through the process of anointing his body uh, with spices and loving the body of Jesus in this way, in verse 10, we're told who the women are. It's Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, as well as, it just simply says, other women. When they arrive, however, nothing is normal. That Sunday morning, they get there, and the first thing that's off is that the stone has been rolled away. They look inside, and there is an empty tomb. The first witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an empty tomb. It speaks, it says something. He's not here. He's not there. The stone rolled away. Jesus is gone. The tomb is empty. But if that's not enough, we have a second witness. There's actually an angelic proclamation. It's as if God is saying, look, I want you to really be sure as to what has happened. And so I'm going to send two angels dressed in dazzling apparel, verse 4. These two men show up. And they give the second testimony. In verse 4 or verse 5, they say, uh, as the women are frightened, bowing their faces to the ground, the men said, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. So the third testimony then, then is the women themselves. The women, having seen all of these things, having witnessed where Jesus was laid, having seen the, uh, and heard the testimony of the, the empty tomb and the angels, they immediately run back and they become witnesses. They become a testimony to the resurrection of Jesus to the 11 disciples. Now, the, the disciples, when they hear this, don't believe it. Uh, it's preposterous to them. And so in, uh, uh, they, they simply don't believe. However, Peter in verse 12 says, I'm going to go check things out. So he runs to the tomb, and here, as he arrives, we see yet another testimony to the risen Jesus, a fourth testimony, if you would, and that is the linen clothes. 
It says in verse 12, Peter rose, ran to the tomb, stooping and looking, and he saw the linen clothes by themselves. Why do the linen clothes speak of the resurrection? Well, uh, one of the accusations against Jesus' resurrection is that it was a tomb robber, that the, maybe the disciples themselves came and stole the body of Jesus. That's why the stone was put there in the first place, to protect the body from being stolen. Well, why would a thief come and steal the body and not take the grave clothes with the body? A thief, especially with Roman guards standing around, would not take time to take off the grave clothes and leave behind the clothes taking the body only. The fact that the clothes are there means that something crazy has happened. We don't know exactly how the clothes were laid out, but we can only imagine that they were laid out in the way that Jesus was laid out. And Jesus got up in another form of a body, out of the clothes, and left behind the linens. There's another testimony that's to come. We're going to save that for next week, and that is this. Jesus himself appears to the men on the Emmaus Road, to the twelve, to the women, to 500 at one time. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an indisputable fact of human history. There's more evidence for the fact that Jesus rose from the dead than most of your ancient history that you heard about and read about in elementary, middle, and high school. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was so uh, earth-shattering, it made such a big splash that even the, the non-Christian historians of the day mentioned the resurrection in their histories. So, for example, Josephus, a first century historian of the day, speaking of this time period, he said this of Jesus, Pilate condemned him to, him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. First century document written about 30 years after Jesus' resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead. The empty grave speaks. The angels from heaven speak. The women testify. His disciples testify. 500 testify. The linens testify. Jesus rose from the dead. However, what I want to do this morning is explore why Jesus rose from the dead. Because for the early writers, the resurrection was not just simply an afterthought. For the gospel writers, for these people who are proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ, the resurrection was, was not simply a, uh, an epilogue to an amazing story or uh, the following action after the cross. But rather, the resurrection is the resolution of the story. Meaning the whole goal of Jesus' life and death was to rise. Therefore, you might say the resurrection defines the cross. Or Sunday defines Friday. We cannot understand the event which took place on Friday unless we understand what happened on Sunday. Are you with me? 
Without the resurrection, we have no salvation. If you want to write that down, you get the whole point of my sermon right there. Somebody says, what did Joel talk about on Sunday? Just simply say this. Without the resurrection, we have no salvation. I could give you a thousand reasons as to why Jesus rose from the dead. But we don't have six hours right now. Actually, we, we do. I could give you a thousand. We could just take a congregational vote right now. You want a six-hour sermon? I'll give you ten. How's that? Ten reasons as to why Jesus rose from the dead. I'm seeing these ten, for the most part, right here in this text. Ten reasons as to why Jesus rose from the dead. Number one, Jesus rose to restart humanity. He rose to restart humanity. Verse 24, but on the, which day of the week? Did I hear first? I thought I heard third. Third day. You're right, you're right. I'm tracking with you. But the text says, <laughs> on the first day of the week. Why did Jesus rise on the first day of the week? Have you ever thought about that? Why did Jesus rise on the first? God doesn't do anything happenstance. Well, what happened on the first day in Genesis? God spoke. God began to create the world. It's as if now with the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the first day, God is recreating humanity. He's recreating the world. He is starting a new thing in Jesus Christ. In Adam, we all die. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. But in Christ, we are all what? Come on, somebody. We are all made alive. Adam was created in Genesis. Adam was the representative head for the entire human race that has fallen in rebellion against God, that has incurred the curse of sin and of death. But in Christ, all are made alive. Because Christ becomes what the Bible calls our second Adam. And Paul goes on to say that since uh, we died with Christ, we also live with Christ. Those who are represented by the second Adam are a people, a new people, a new humanity. And that work of a new humanity begins right here on the first day of the week. I don't want to make a big deal about this, but I just think it's funny. My, I overheard my son, Head, and talking to one of our uh, classmates at the Learning Center this week, and uh, he invited his classmate to church, which is cool, and, and uh, his classmate said, why do you meet on uh, Sunday instead of Friday or any other day of the week? And my son said, uh, because Sunday is the Lord's day. <laughs> Not Monday. Not Tuesday, Sunday is the Lord's Day. Why do we meet on Sunday? Well, it actually began right here. So the first day of the week, Jesus met with his disciples. We see again, Jesus meets uh, the next week on the first day. It happens again on the first day of the week. It's as if uh, he's meeting with this new constitution of humanity. It's as if we're saying, hey, 
uh, the, the new human race get together and, and, and meet and worship as a recreated people. And John calls it the Lord's Day in the book of Revelation. My point is simply this, though. We are a recreated people. We are a new people. We are meeting this morning constituting a new humanity. If you are in Christ, the old has passed away and you are a new creation. Oh, let that be. Let that, let that be seen to the world. Secondly, Jesus rose to defeat the enemy. Jesus rose from the dead to defeat the enemy. We see here on this day, verse 2, the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. Who put the stone in place? Does anybody remember? The, the Romans, Pilate, ordered that a stone would be put in place so that the body could not be stolen. Now, the, the big enemy, the big physical enemy of their day was Rome. And Rome put this stone in place, but God just simply moved the stone when it was time to raise Jesus from the dead. The point is simple. Pilate's power could not end Jesus. Roman soldiers could not destroy Jesus. Roman guards could not stop Jesus from getting up out of the grave. And a Roman stone could not contain Him. However, Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, meaning our biggest enemy is not Rome or any political party of our day or any uh, world superpower. Our biggest enemy is the unseen enemy of sin, death, and guilt. And what Jesus does is not only does he rise as the, the victor and the conqueror and the world power, which he is, by the way, Jesus is the world power. Uh, Jesus is the king. We just don't simply see that yet with our physical eyes. He is spiritually ruling and reigning, and one day that rule and reign will be physically seen as he comes again. But Jesus destroys not just simply physical powers, but the greatest power, and that is death and hell itself. He rose to defeat the enemy. Number three, Jesus rose to be the judge. How does Jesus defeat the enemy? Well, he rises as the judge. In Acts chapter 10, verse 42, it says that Jesus is raised by God and appointed then by God in his resurrection to be the judge of the living and the dead. Meaning when you stand judged one day, which we all will, it doesn't matter if we say, I reject it. That's not my truth. I don't believe in it. You still have to face death. And in your death, you face God. God has not appointed just simply an assistant to be his judge on that day. But Jesus Christ sits as the judge. And the point is simple. How you receive Jesus now is how he judges you then. Recently, we've been going through Galatians in, in our Bible study, and Eric hit Galatians chapter 5 a week ago, uh, talking about the acts of the flesh. 
And, and it says these are the kind of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is just a short list. This is not exhaustive. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, uh, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, and orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus is the judge. And those who stand opposed to him and his rule today, he will oppose on that day. Oh, may we all be found in Christ on that day. For all who turn from their sins and are sorry for their sins and run to the cross and say, God, save me from the guilt of my sin, have the promise that they are in Christ. Then we stand judged not by our own righteousness, not by the fact that I was able to never commit any of these things, but that Jesus was, was able to not commit these things. And I am on that day in Christ. And Jesus says, I know you. You're one of mine. You're in me. Welcome. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Jesus rose, number four, to give life to the dead. He rose to give life to the dead. I love the rebuke that comes from the angels to the women. It really is a rebuke. They say, why do you seek the living among the dead? It's almost as if the angels are confused. Why are you coming to a graveyard to find Jesus Christ? Jesus is not found among the graves. He's not found among the tombs. Listen, church, you don't go looking among the dead to find Jesus. He's not there. For Jesus is alive. And what, is, what does that mean for us? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20 says that Jesus is risen as the first fruits of those who sleep. In agricultural societies, you would know what that first fruit uh, means. Uh, they, they bring in the first fruits off of the field. It's, it's the very first uh, bit of the crop for the season. And you can really determine the rest of the crop based on the quality of this fruit. Jesus is the first fruits, meaning there's a whole other crop to come. There are many more who will be raised in the same way. But Jesus is the first of his kind, or the first to be raised in this way, rather. And, and, and those who are in Christ will be raised, meaning those who are asleep, those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, made spiritually alive through the gospel of Jesus Christ, have the hope that one day they will be raised from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says your, your uh, body your, that, that you will be raised with is, is far more glorious than the body that you currently have. He compares it to a seed uh, and a flower. The body you have is that of a seed. The body that will come is that of a flower, a rose, a beautiful plant, a tree. Meaning you are going to be raised uh, with an imperishable, an immortal body freed from, from sin with no temptation to sin. Jesus rose so that he might give life to the dead. Number five, Jesus rose for our justification. 
How does Jesus do all of this? How does he give life to the dead? Well, Romans chapter 4, verse 25 says that he's raised for our justification. Justification is a word that means to be declared righteous, to be made right. In what way does Jesus' resurrection accomplish our justification? It does so in tandem with his death. On one hand, Jesus' resurrection vindicates his own work and his own life. It encourages our, our, our faith and gives us faith, gives us the renewal, spiritual life that is needed, and in doing so, we are justified before God. Number six, Jesus is raised to fulfill prophecy. In verse six, the angels remind the women of something that Jesus himself had said. Remember how he told you, they said, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. From that Palm Sunday through the conspiracy that came out of the religious leaders all the way through Judas being willing to turn Jesus over and betray him to Peter, denying Jesus to the Romans, putting Jesus on the cross and everything that happened in terms of Jesus' crucifixion. What we see is God's providential hand in every single bit of it fulfilling prophecy. God didn't have to send us prophets, but God did send us prophets. And in Jesus' resurrection, he fulfills yet another prophecy. So we see God's providence fulfills his prophecies, and therefore, in doing so, it proves that Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah of God. Number seven, Jesus rose from the dead to show that God accepted his sacrifice. He rose from the dead to show that God accepted his sacrifice. Romans chapter 1, verse 4 says that in his resurrection, Jesus is declared to be the Son of God. In the old days uh, of a monarchy, and still in some countries where there are monarchies, a, a king, of, or a prince rather, would grow up to be the heir of the throne, the son of the king. And one day there would be a coronation in which the crown is put on his head and he is declared to be the king. However, does that make him an heir? Does the coronation make him to be an heir of the throne? No, it declares what he already possesses. Does the resurrection of Jesus make Jesus Lord? No, it declares him to be Lord. Does the resurrection of Jesus make Jesus to be the Son of God? No, Paul says in Romans 1, he is declared to be the Son of God. It's as if the coronation happens here in this moment as Jesus gets up from the dead and he is declared to be what he's always been and that is the Son of God, our Lord, the Savior of the world. The crown is put on his head and we recognize him for what he is. It shows us that God said yes. Yes, I accept this sacrifice. I accept his work, and he's raised. Listen, if Jesus stayed in the grave, that means he didn't die for your sins. If Jesus stayed in the grave, that means he died for his own sins. 
It means that he himself was under the curse of death. Oh, but Jesus got up. Which means he didn't die for his own sins, for he had no sins to die for. He took on your sins and was able to defeat them. It's as if all of the weight of our sin was placed onto his shoulders and crushed him more and more and more, buried him in the ground, and he was able to just stand up with nothing. The coronation of the king declared to be our Lord. Number eight, Jesus rose to commission the saints. What happens immediately with the women? They immediately turn and run and return, uh, return right back to the disciples. And it says in verse 10, uh, they told these things to the apostles. The women become the very first evangelists. Jesus rose to spread the word of his work through the whole world. How do, how do you know that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, somebody told you that, right? Might have been a parent, might have been a pastor, might have been a friend. Somebody told you that Jesus rose from the dead and somebody told them and somebody told them who somebody told, who somebody told, who somebody told, who somebody told, going all the way back to the apostles who were told by the women. Jesus rose to spread the word of who he is across the globe. And that's what we see uh, immediately happen in the upcoming weeks as Jesus commissions the saints to go into all the world to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to all the world, baptizing people, making disciples of Jesus for his name's sake, for his glory. Number nine, Jesus rose to convince the skeptic. When, when, the, when the disciples are told that Jesus was risen, what does it say? It says in verse 11 that they, it, it seemed to them as an idle tale. They, they did not believe them. Do you realize that the greatest missionaries of the world were first skeptics? You know what it was that really got them? It was the resurrection of Jesus. Look, you too would be skeptic if it wasn't for the resurrection of Jesus. I've told this story before, and it's such a good story, I've, I, I tell it probably once a year or so. Uh, I was in a conversation years ago with an atheist, and uh, we were meeting in a restaurant right on Charles Street and uh, talking through the gospel, and they were giving me all of these different pushbacks for why you know, we can't believe in Christianity. And then she said this. She said, look, if somebody actually died and rose from the dead, then I would believe. Then I would believe. And I was like, oh, <laughs> really? Well, that happened. <laughs> you know, the resurrection has convinced hundreds and thousands and probably millions of skeptics. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard of very intellectual, smart people 
who study things and have given their, their time to study the, the claims of Christianity and have come out a believer and they'll say it was, it was the resurrection of Jesus that I couldn't get around. How loving of God. How loving of God to give us evidence upon evidence upon evidence upon evidence. Don't you understand that God could have just privately risen Jesus from the dead? He could have. Jesus could have risen from the dead, not seen anybody, said, I'm going to get the heck out of here, and I'm going to go straight back to be with the Father, and the ascension happens right away, right? How loving it was of God to, to, to give us evidence. 40 days where Jesus is hanging out with people. Why does he do this? For us and for our salvation. It helps our faith. That's the kind of God that we serve. Jesus rose from the dead to convince skeptics. God loves them. He moves in history. He intervenes the natural uh, ways of things happening so that we might know that He is true. Look, when Muhammad spoke, there was no supernatural intervention in time and space. When Buddha spoke, there was no supernatural intervention in time and space. When Joseph Smith spoke, there was no supernatural intervention in time and space. Yet, when Noah warned the people of a flood, the flood came. When Moses said, let my people go, God split waters. And when Jesus dies for us and for our salvation, God raises him from the dead. God intervenes with time and space so that we might know that everything Jesus has said is true and that he is my Lord and my Savior. Number 10, and I'll close with this one. He rose to receive the glory. He rose to receive the glory. Listen, Peter, Peter just two days before ran from Jesus. And now the one who ran from Jesus is running to the tomb. And when he arrives, he sees the testimony and the evidence. And in verse 12, it simply says, he went home marveling at what happened. That word marvel is not just simply, hmm, I'm thinking about it. That word marvel is better understood, this, this kind of hopeful, it's hard to catch your breath kind of thinking as you can't wait another minute to find out what this resolution is, to find out what's happened because it seems that everything is going right all of a sudden. It's the kind of thinking that happens for a woman when a man gets down on one knee and she says, oh, I know what's about to happen right now. That's marveling. Peter is marveling. He's excited. He's giving God the glory. He's giving God praise even though he's yet to see the risen Jesus with his own eye. Church, Jesus rose from the dead. Let's marvel together. Let's give him the glory. Let's, 
Let's be a joyful people in the midst of our challenges. Let's have the joy because Jesus took the sting out of death. John Ryland, a theologian from the past, at the burial of his friend Andrew Gifford, he said this, as Andrew's body was being let down into the ground, John Ryland said, farewell, thou dear old man. We leave thee in possession of death till the resurrection day. But we will bear witness against thee, O king of terrors, at the mouth of this dungeon. Thou shalt not always have possession of this dead body. It shall be demanded of thee by the great conqueror, and at that moment thou shalt resign thy prisoner. O ye ministers of Christ, ye people of God, ye surrounding spectators, prepare, prepare to meet this old servant of Christ at that day, at that hour, when this whole place shall be all nothing but life and death shall be swallowed up in victory. Death will not have its final say on your body, but one day the great conqueror will say, death that body is mine, and God will revive it to life. Robert Smith said this once. He said, the greatest theft in human history took place in a cemetery when, where, where Jesus took the sting out of death, robbed the grave of its victory, and declared all power was in his hand. Church, live today in light of your future hope. There was a kid who, who grew up in the inner city of Akron. He grew up single mom. They had nothing in the house. And when he was in high school, he went out, went out and bought himself a Hummer for $50,000. Now, how could he do that? It's because his name was LeBron James. And he was living now in light of a future hope. Now, church, your future hope, I'm sorry to say, it is not a multi-million dollar NBA contract. <laughs> but I'm happy to tell you this, it's better. Yeah. It's better. Your future hope is life itself. Life freed from the worries of today, freed from the pain and the trauma of today where all tears are wiped away and all things are made new and forever we live in joy with God in a physical world with bodies that are physically made new, glorious bodies, bodies that are so beautiful that if you saw them today, you would just drop dead in awe. Oh, live today in light of that future hope. What does that mean for us? It doesn't mean go out and buy yourself a $50,000 Hummer. Don't do it. I'm not that kind of preacher. What it means is this. It means that we have joy. We have joy. As we see the world decaying around us, as we feel and, and witness our own bodies in decay, as we see grandparents and parents and, and sometimes brothers and sisters and even children pass on before us, May we know that death does not have the final say on us. There is no sting in death. And one day God will pull us back out of death, give us new life for all of eternity in Him. That's good news, isn't it? That's a good future hope. 
And let me close by saying this. As the devil comes and tempts you to despair, as your friends, maybe unintentionally, sometimes intentionally, make you feel like your life is an utter waste, as the enemy comes at you and, and, and threatens death, just, just, just go from chapter 23 to chapter 24. Just show them chapter 24, verse 1. Because 23 ends with hopelessness. 23 ends with death. It ends with Jesus in the grave. But chapter 24, verse 1 says, But on that first day of the week. Church, do you know what happened on the first day of the week? If you know what happened, you've got joy. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the joy that we have in Jesus. Because on that first day of the week, Jesus rose from the dead. In the world that we live in, with all of its death and decay, God, give us that joy. May we live today in light of our future hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.